Episode 2, Agrippa and the Ubi. Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne podcast. In this episode we will wrap up Caesar's impact on the Cologne lowland and we get to meet two other Romans, two of the three persons I call the three founders of Cologne, and their names are Augustus and Agrippa. The third one that is a woman actually will be revealed shortly, so stay tuned for the next episodes. And at last, of course, we'll talk about how do the Ubi fit into all of this. In the last episode, we end with the Ubi being in a dire situation. But let's conclude with Caesar. Caesar won the war in Gaul in 49 BCE. He then had to fight a civil war because he had turned against the Senate. And after five years in 44 BCE, he was victorious and became dictator for life. In that time, the Ubi continued being allies of Caesar and supplied him with troops. Back home, the Ubi were in trouble because the Germanic tribes on the right side of the Rhine were pushing them out of the territory more and more. The left side of the Rhine was secured by Rome, being considered as a part of Gaul, but the right side was not really. And most of the Germanic tribes really hated the Ubi back then. More than Germans hate the possibility of a general speed limit on national highways nowadays. But Caesar had other challenges to face. He never came back to the region or helped the Ubi out. Being dictator for life got you bigger tasks to deal with. But dictator for life, what does it mean? If you are elected being a dictator for life, how long is that? A year, five years, or maybe ten years? Some Roman senators were indeed unsatisfied with the turns the Roman Republic had done. They took matters into their own hands and they chose a rather radical way to define that time span of for life. In March 44 BCE, they stabbed Caesar 23 times to death. That means that Caesar's dictatorship for life didn't even last for more than a few weeks. Don't worry, I will wrap up this part of Roman history in a very short time. For nearly the next two decades, Roman civil wars would continue, and in the end, Caesar's adopted son Gaius Octavius would end up being victorious in 31 BCE, and he would become the first real emperor of Rome, and he would not only rule a few weeks like Caesar, no, he would rule like 45 years. He would transform the defunct republic into an absolute military dictatorship. And not only that, he would remodel the whole empire that stretched from Spain to the Middle East and from the North Sea to the Sahara Desert in Egypt. And the Cologne lowland at the Rhine River was part of the northern border of that empire. But hold up, you might say, Gaius Octavius, who is that, you might ask? Well, you might know him better by his honorific title, Augustus. But enough of the history of Rome, because this is the history of Cologne, obviously. But all we have to know is this, that after nearly a century of bloody civil wars in Rome, under the firm rule of Emperor Augustus, Rome now had the time to actually form its empire that had been conquered during the last decades. The situation in Cologne lowland didn't really change a lot since Caesar had been gone. But you always have to consider that Caesar conquered a big part of Central Europe without even having the time to really establish a firm rule or even an administration there. So as a result of that lack of organization, Germanic tribes still crossed the Rhine River into Roman territory in their pillaged settlements and attacked tribes on the left side of the Rhine that were under Roman control or were allied with them. And our beloved Ubi, they were still in a bigger jam, being left alone on the other side of the Rhine, surrounded by enemies, as I had mentioned many times before now. Because of that, Augustus sent the best man he had to offer as a governor, and his name was Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. And we have to talk a little bit about Marcus Agrippa. 
Agrippa was a man of his own kind at his time, just like Emperor Augustus was, who he was the best buddy with. And as a side note, a professor during my time in university always told me that a historian must not celebrate historic figures, but always be critical in their studies about them. But since this is not a thesis for university, but my podcast, I'll do it anyway and fanboy a little bit about Agrippa. Agrippa and Augustus were the same age, even though some sources claim that Agrippa was a year younger, but don't split hairs. Come on. Many, many praises were made across the course of human history about Augustus through the ages. And we even have a whole month named after him up until today. And yes, July is also called after guys Julius Caesar, because Julius is not his second name, it's his family name. But back to Agrippa. All of Augustus' glory wouldn't have been able without his best and loyal friend Agrippa. And all the important battles Augustus had to fight during his time and rise to power, it was Agrippa who led those battles, or led the armies into the battle and won them. And since the Romans hardly divided civilian and military tasks, Agrippa was also a great civilian official. Like fixing the logistics of food and water supply in Rome and several parts of the empire after death and civil war had waged for years or even decades, Agrippa organized and fixed it. There is no glorification intended for Agrippa, but Agrippa being born into a minor family, you have to remember that uh, his family neither had set a foot into politics, and I don't really believe that his family beforehand never even set foot into the city of Rome. Agrippa always remembered what it was like not, well, he was not from the bottom of society, but he wasn't either from the top of society, and Agrippa knew that, and he knew how life was for the common people. Remember, the old Roman Republic that had lasted for 500 years just vanished without big resistance. Well, the Senate, parts of the Senate resisted against Caesar, but many even supported him. And one of the reasons why the common people didn't miss the old Roman Republic was very simple. The hundred years prior were shaped by greedy nobles, politicians and generals that accumulated so much wealth and power for their own class. It had driven big parts of Roman and Italian society into poverty, especially the small landowning farmers who had been the backbone of the republican society. They had lost everything due to a massive import of slaves into Italy and them being a cheaper labor force working on big plantations of the nobility. A small landowning farmer with just maybe his family members working on a little acre, they couldn't compete with that. It is no surprise that 1900 years later, Karl Marx would use this era as a basis for his argumentation for socialism. But I digress, of course, here. Funny enough, he will be very important for Cologne's later history because Marx would live here for a short while. But we are way not there yet. I hope and believe there are 100 episodes between that until we get to Karl Marx. Grippa and Augustus knew they had to win the hearts of the calm people for the new empire stability. And under Agrippa's supervision, infrastructures like public wells and fountains for drinking water, water supply networks, roads and public buildings in general were constructed all across the Roman Empire. And after 2000 years, surprisingly much of his work is still there. For example, the Aquamasia, aqueduct, I don't know if you call it in English as well, it is a water line that is in some parts still in use for the water supply of modern Rome. But for me, the best thing Agrippa has left for the world to see is the Pantheon of Rome. And it's not because I've been there like 20 years ago. The Pantheon, if you're a little bit skilled in old Greek language, was used for all the gods that didn't have their own temple in the city. It is the best preserved ancient Roman building structure that has survived until today. And with great luck, I have to tell. 
The building was nearly destroyed through a fire just a few decades after it was being built. Later on it survived the downfall of the empire and the city of Rome itself because it was turned into a Christian church, so it wasn't either burnt down by the several invading forces that pillaged Rome, nor was it destroyed by anti-pagan Christians who did this to most of the pagan temples in the late Roman Empire period. Recently it serves as a tomb for the Italian kings of the 19th and 20th century and I still believe it in some kind of way serves as a church but I heard that it's not in the possession of the Vatican but it's still in the membership of the Italian government. The building often barely escaped destruction and if you're an American, many universities in your country have taken inspiration of the Pantheon. Wait a second, I want to look that up for you. So yeah, actually many, many buildings were inspired by the Pantheon. For example, the Rotunda of the University of Virginia or the Baldwin Auditorium of Duke University. But even a Catholic cathedral in Berlin that I've visited recently has the same shape. But yeah, it often barely escaped destruction last time in World War II. The Pantheon has a big dome on top and it's absolutely breathtaking, just like Keanu Reeves was at E3 2019. Just imagine, they built this without high-tech tools like machines or computers, just with their imagination. So if you plan to visit Rome sometime in your life, definitely check it out. And sorry, this was an example of being a studied historian digressing a lot, so let's get back to Agrippa. Agrippa was indeed a good friend of Emperor Augustus. For example, when Augustus would leave for military campaigns for several years far away from Rome, Agrippa would cover his back in Rome and rule as a regent in his absence, and he never even tried to abuse his power or even overthrow Augustus. Agrippa is that kind of a good pal that you need in life, I think. But enough of the praise before my history professor comes around the corner and smacks me with a sheet of paper. What is important for us and for this podcast is to focus on Agrippa's influence in the newly conquered Cologne Lowland. So as I mentioned, Augustus sent Agrippa to the Cologne Lowland and to Gaul in general as a governor. There were two terms that Agrippa served as a governor for all of Gaul and not only for the Cologne Lowland. The first time was in 39-38 BCE and his second term was in 22-18 BCE. And since the Romans regarded everything up until the Rhine River as Gaul, later Cologne was also in Gaul, as I had mentioned earlier. You may criticize that because it didn't consider that many, uh, some German tribes lived already on the left bank of the Rhine, so that the definition of a hard border was not really a good idea, I guess. But that means that he, I mean Agrippa, as a governor of Gaul, was also the governor of the Cologne lowlands. So let's talk about his work there. Agrippa, for me, is the first founder of the city Cologne, and that implies that there is more than just one founder. But to explain why I call him even one of the founders of Cologne, we have to talk about a small myth that came into my mind when I was creating the script for this episode. And the myth is even in many parts even true, and has a kind of humor with it. And it goes like this, and this time I will not, f and this I have to read all the paper, and I will really try to make it as entertaining as I can. So the myth goes like this. The Romans had conquered all of Gaul, and were heading to conquer the free people of Germania. A small Germanic tribe, who were called the Ubii, lived on the right bank of the Rhine. They were a small and not very brave tribe, because they only fought for defense. They preferred fishing and hunting, and worst of all in the eyes of the neighboring tribes, the men even listened to their women for advice. Can you believe that? Weaklings, the other tribes yelled at the Ubii. Curse the ugly Ubii. 
it was sure the Ubii didn't have any friends at all. In addition to that, the Romans under General Agrippa were on their way to conquer them as they had done with the gods prior. The chieftains of the Ubii had to decide, should they really face the mighty military power of the Roman Empire of alone? It was impossible to survive this encounter. Instead, they listened to their women, who recommended, if you can't beat your enemy, become his friend. Furthermore, they told them to let the Romans just pass through the territory, and the chieftains did just that. When the Roman legions arrived to fight against the Suevi, remember they were the ones the Ubii had blamed for aiding the Traveri and Eberons in their revolt against Caesar in the episode before. The Ubii then even gave the Roman legions food and supplies on the way to Inner Germania. As you can imagine, the other Germans had enough of it. The Ubii are not only weaklings, they are ugly and traitors as well, they said. But the Roman general Marcus Agrippa on the other side was so moved by this kindness of the Ubii that he had seen. He knew that the little trial of the Ubii wouldn't last long against such animosities by its neighbors. So he invited the Ubii to cross the Rhine and settle on the left bank in Roman territory in the Cologne lowlands. Of course Agrippa's gift wasn't without any terms. He ordered the Ubii to build a wall around the city where the Ubii and Romans could settle and be safe of the flood of the Rhine. Furthermore, the Ubii should guard the border at the Rhine River against any invaders or enemies of Rome. The Ubii were now franchisees of the Roman Empire. We will do that, the Ubii promised. But instead of doing so, they just went fishing in the Rhine and didn't guard the border as Agrippa had them ordered to. Agrippa was shocked. You should protect the border and not go on a fishing trip. Your mission is to defend the empire against any barbaric invaders. But then Agrippa saw what was going on in the eyes of the chieftains. The Ubii was scared of being left alone again, as Caesar had done before. He admitted, Maybe the task is too big for such a small tribe as you are, dear Ubii chieftains. For your aid, I will leave a portion of my troops here, and we will build strong fortifications around a settlement to make it easier to defend the Rhine as a border. The Ubii were now happy and grateful about the news. But nevertheless, the Ubii seemed to be sad. What is it? Agrippa asked the chieftains again. Well... We, we we don't know how to say this, one of them muttered. Well, another chieftain said, the other German tribe's colors ugly. Do, do you think we're ugly? Agrippa couldn't help himself and replied, you ask me, a Roman general, if you are ugly? So to clear this right off the way, Agrippa ordered a servant to bring him a silver plate. He then cleaned and polished it with his coat so it could be used as a mirror. Hold this up in front of your face, Agrippa demanded from the chieftain. What do you see? Well, I see myself, the chieftain replied, staring into his own reflection. So tell me, Agrippa said sassily, do you think you're ugly? And why that face? Smile for once. The chieftain smiled, and when he saw the smiling reflection of his face, he had to laugh about himself. The other chieftains, one after another, grabbed the silver plate, and also then started laughing. You see, Agrippa stated, men that are able to laugh about themselves will never be ugly. Now the common people of the Ubii started staring to their own reflection, and the whole night cheerful laughter was heard everywhere. This is how Romans and Ubii finally became good friends. The end. I have to confess one thing to you. This is not a real myth. It is a modern tale by Tilman Röhrich, a German author, and I think the story is from the 1980s, I guess. I'm not really sure about that. 
The story is fictional, yes, but it was not passed down from ancient times like other myths I will cover in this podcast. But I liked this story so much as a child and I retold it as best as I can. So I apologize for misleading you. But the question remains, how much of this story is actually true? And I have to say pretty much. Well, of course, the real process of resetting the UBI from the right bank of the Rhine to the left bank of the Rhine into Roman-controlled territory took, of course, a little bit longer. And yes, the UBI were some kind of way allies of Rome, but remember, they had subjugated themselves under Caesar after being accused of aiding and supporting the Eberones' revolts against Caesar in that winter camp many, many years ago that was obliterated by the Eberones. In the time between Caesar and Augustus, it is pretty sure that the UBI thenceforth had to pay tributes to Rome and, more importantly, of course, had to supply troops like the infamous Germanic cavalry, because the Romans had to admit that they were indeed quite poorly horsemen. And it is to be expected that the UBI fought for Caesar in the civil war and later on even supplied Augustus with military aid, being the heir of Caesar. The fact is that Augustus had sent Agrippa twice to the Rhine to secure it as a border, as I had mentioned it earlier. And it is true that many forts along the Rhine River allowed pillaging Germanic tribes from the right side of the Rhine to cross into Roman territory and do pillaging. To stop that, Agrippa indeed had the perfect idea. Why not invite and move the pressured allied Ubii into Roman territory and combine their forces with those of the Romans in the region? This way, a major part of the left bank of the Rhine in that area and region would be secured, and on the other hand, the UBI would be thankful. So this is pretty much in accord with the tale we just heard about the UBI and Romans becoming friends, and we have sources that even prove that. The Roman historian Tacitus, I don't know how you pronounce him in English, wrote about this in his account about Germania. Quote, They, he means the UBI, they had come over here some time ago, and for their reliable loyalty were relocated to the immediate bank of the Rhine to protect, but not to be monitored. End quote. Tacitus wrote this around the year 100 CE, so nearly 120-140 years later. But there's another historian called Strabo, who even lived around the time of Augustus. After describing the Germanic tribes that lived on the right side of a bank in one of its books, he reports... The Ubii are living on the other side, who were voluntarily led by Agrippa into the region. So there we have two very short reports. It is not much, I have to admit, but these short reports, they still give us so much important information for us. And those are three things. First, the Ubii were not forced to leave the traditional land. Second, they were invited by Agrippa to settle onto the other side. And third, they were put there as allies and not as subordinates. All these three points are even more remarkable because in other parts of the frontier between Gaul and Germania, it seems like the Romans actually forced several other allied Germanic tribes to cross the river against their will and move into Roman-controlled territory. And we have to assume that Agrippa's decision came just in time for the Uii and it might have saved them in the last minute from being all killed. It's true reported that at that time a coalition of hostile Germanic tribes on the right side of the Rhine were in a full-scale attack against the territory of the Ubii. And then the other question still remains, when did this all happen? When did the Ubii cross the Rhine and settle in the Cologne lowland? Remember, the first governorship of Agrippa was in 38 BCE and the second one was around 19 BCE. 
And for me, personally as a historian, I tend to the latter because in 38 BCE, Rome was still in a civil war that had erupted after Caesar's assassination in 44 BCE, so very shortly after. In that time, we have to assume that Agrippa mainly focused on military aspects, like building roads through Gaul to move his armies quicker and establishing supply networks and, of course, fighting against insurgents in Gaul and Germania, who pillaged Roman-controlled territory. I don't say that 38 BCE couldn't be a date for Cologne being founded, but for me it's very, very unlikely because of the facts that I just listed up. On the other hand, in 19 BCE, we have a totally other situation because the things in Rome were totally different then. Rome was on the sole rule of Augustus as an emperor. The civil war had already ended nearly a decade ago back then. So 19 BCE for me is a better time for structuring and enhancing the inner configuration of the empire. And it's that time period where other settlements in their region were founded by the Romans as well. But after all, the resettlement of the Ubi was a win-win situation for the Romans and the Ubi. And the Ubi really benefited from the resettlement year of Agrippa. Because remember from our very first, or episode zero, I forgot now really, but remember the Cologne lowlands has very fertile soil, and under Roman rule now, and securing the border, they didn't have to fear any pillaging anymore in the region, and they were safe. And the Ubia would not only get a share of the territory of later Cologne, no, they would settle all across the Cologne lowland. That's why I always focus not on the city of Cologne's area, but also on the surroundings of Cologne as well. And we will have to continue with that through the whole podcast, because a city is dependent on its environment around it. All across the Cologne lowlands, the Ubia would now build homesteads and little settlements. And because the land is very fertile, they would do, of course, a lot of farming and, I think, cattle and stuff like that. Because you have to remember, stationing troops at the end of the world in your perspective, in Roman's perspective, means that those troops have to be supplied. And Rome is very far away from there. It still even is today if you take a car. It takes a whole day to drive from Cologne to Rome, if you're lucky. And you can make it for a day and not get tired on the way to it. So the best thing is for troops to be supplied from the region they are stationed at. That's why the UBI would focus on farming and food supply, mainly. So how many UBI settled into the Cologne lowlands? Well, of course, we can only estimate because there are no reliable sources that tell us that. But given the logistics at that time, how many people could be transported in a short period of time and how much land was available there and how much soldiers had to be supplied, it is realistic that there are 40,000 UBIs or people of the UBI that went from the right to the left side of the Rhine. All the settlements of the Ubi as a shield at the border, uh, at the Rhine, more precisely, pleased Agrippa. And in doing that, the Romans proved that they were indeed great in franchising the empire. But still, Agrippa was a little bit worried because all those scattered settlements could do nothing against an invading force or even exercise direct control in the region. And since the Romans were a Mediterranean culture, they were pretty urbanized and they preferred central location once in a while in a region. And because of that, Agrippa and his fellow Romans found a place close to the Rhine River where they could first plan and then build a fortified city later on. And they did indeed discover a good spot at the Rhine, on a flat-proof hill with an island in the Rhine in front of it, and that island would prove perfect as a natural harbor because there was only a small waterway that cut it off from the mainland. This city would become ancient Cologne. 
Of course it would take years until that settlement would be finished, but 19 BCE is the date Cologne, or how it was called back then, Opidum Ubiorum, it is Latin for settlement of the Ubii, finally, finally entered the stage of history. And Agrippa and Augustus, of course, who sent him there, laid the foundation of Cologne. And this is why I call both of them the two founders of Cologne. Because there is not a single founder of Cologne in just one specific time. And remember what I said in the introduction, there is still a third one we have to talk about later. And she will be the granddaughter of Agrippa and the great-granddaughter of Augustus. But that will be another story in another episode. Sadly, Agrippa dies of a disease a few years later in 12 BCE, and his best friend Augustus would outlive him for another 26 years. But I see I will get caught up in Roman history, so this is enough now for one episode. Next time we will get to the construction of the Opidum Ubiorum, the settlement of the Ubii, there was the name of Cologne around the year 1 BCE. And the topics we will cover will be who would live there, how come that this settlement will get so important, and how do we know that it was important. And I made a little field trip downtown a few days ago, and in the basement of a normal downtown building, there is a big historical treasure to find that is mostly unknown to the public still until today. And we will get to that in the next episode, so stay tuned. Thank you and as always, auf Wiedersehen.